Joseph Smith was a, a farm boy in what is known as the Burndover District of upstate New York. In September of 1823, when he was just a teenager, he claimed to have been visited by an angel named Moroni. He reported that the angel told him the location of a book made of golden plates that had been hidden in a, in a Native American burial mound near his home. The story goes that an intrigued smith spent four years trying to remove these plates from the ground, and when he finally did retrieve them, it is said that he found within the golden plates a holy book, the Book of Mormon. This book told the story of a band of Hebrews who fled a corrupted Jerusalem and made their way to America more than 2,000 years before Columbus. According to this book, which is simply a figment of Joseph Smith's crazy imagination, God had commanded this Israelite group to fashion plates that preserved religious documents and their, and their genealogies. Again, he, he totally fabricated this. But this so-called discovery resulted in the founding of two massive movements, most notably a new false religion that he called Mormonism, and more recently, the, uh, through this uniquely American religious tradition, the form formalization of genealogical research. See, in 1938... Uh, missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, they started to roam around the world armed with microfilm cameras. They were looking for baptism and marriage and death records. Around 30 years later in the 60s, church technicians plugged these records into IBM mainframes. In 1969, the Mormons' own genealogical society claimed, at least, to have invented a, a mainframe system that they named Giant that automated the submission and clearing of names that grew into what became known as the International Genealogical Index, which is today, even up to 2022, the foremost ancestral database in the world. The Mormons have led the way in the research and development of the study of ancestry and genealogy. In 1999, the Mormon church launched FamilySearch.org, which is one of the first genealogical websites. In September of 2020, just a couple of years ago, they announced that their digital database now includes 8 billion names. 3.2 billion images, and 490,000 books. Ancestry.com, probably the most well-known family history website, was founded in 1990 by two Mormon graduates of Brigham Young University. Why are Mormons so invested in this topic? Well, their research is not just a casual hobby for them. It's rooted in the false teachings of Joseph Smith. See, while, while he emphasized genealogy in Mormonism in his first claims of revelation, later in 1836, he claimed to have been told that, that Elijah, 
the Old Testament prophet, had granted Mormon priests the ability to seal families together for eternity. He claimed that this power extended to dead ancestors and that this process became known as, even to today, the salvation of the dead. Just a few years after that, in the early um, 1840s, Brigham Young, who was the second leader of the Mormons, he further developed this new doctrine to say that heaven for Mormons look like, looks like one big multi-generational family reunion that requires relationships with one's ancestors to be strengthened on earth. But it gets even a little bit weirder because this process does not, not just require Mormon members to research their family trees. They actually practice posthumous baptisms, baptisms for the dead to try and save as many people as possible before the end of time. So they're teaching that if you know the name of one of your ancestors, that you can be baptized in their place in order to save them, to save someone who is dead and could have been dead for hundreds of years. You can imagine that this would cause some controversy, especially for people outside of Mormonism. So in the 1990s, it was revealed that the Church of the Latter-day Saints, as it is sometimes called, was performing baptisms for the dead on the names of, for example, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of World War II Holocaust victims. Many of their Jewish descendants were outraged over this. And so in 1995, a rule was developed that specifically prohibited the baptism for the dead in the names of Holocaust victims unless they were direct ancestors of Mormons. And at the same time, the church also banned these kinds of baptisms for celebrities. Although in 2017, it was revealed that um, proxy baptisms, we might call them, had been held for Humphrey Bogart, Marilyn Monroe, and the Queen Mother as well as for the grandparents of Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and Steven Spielberg. Geneal genealogical research is a huge revenue source for the Church of the Latter-day Saints, for the Mormons. And, and make no mistake, just so that we're clear, they are not Christians no matter what they claim. They've invented their own Jesus Christ who is not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. But like most false teaching. Like most heresies that have plagued Christianity since the time of the apostles, there's often at the root a verse or a passage that is taken out of context and misapplied in a way that, that only the one doing such a thing has the special knowledge to be able to do. And in today's passage that we're going to look at, we come across one such verse. A verse that Joseph Smith added to by claiming to receive special revelation. And incidentally, when he did this, he, he was looking into a hat and quoting what he said was this special revelation. It's the craziest story you've ever heard, but that's for a different time. The Mormons have developed through this an entire lucrative industry. Now, before I read these verses, I want to mention that one of the, one of the advantages and challenges of preaching through books of the Bible consecutively 
um, is that we have to wrestle with passages that are hard to understand. But it's worth wrestling with them because, well, for one reason, false teachers use passages like this to lead people astray, almost always for their own selfish gain. So as much as possible, we need to be armed with an understanding of what the passage actually means. So we're not going to skip over this, even though it's difficult to understand. We're going to look at it. So let me read this, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to read verses 29 to 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at, wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's just stop and pray here. Lord, I pray that, um, that you would give us what we need this morning. We know that our greatest need is Christ. I pray that we would leave here with hope. Hope in the resurrection. Hope of eternity with our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one thing as we read through these uh, verses, one thing that should stand out to you, um, especially if you've been studying this with us, if you've been here right along working through this chapter, um, these verses are similar to and even kind of a callback to verses 12 to 19, which are those, those verses are those if-then statements that we looked at, and we've mentioned them several weeks now. If the dead are not raised the conclusion that we have to come to is, then you're still dead in your sins. Paul picks up on that thought here, and he addresses the absurdity of the, uh, those who claim the name of Christ, those who are claiming to be Christians. Remember, he's writing to the church. So the, it is absurd for those who claim the name of Christ, who say they are Christians, and yet to deny the reality of a physical resurrection. And in these verses, so... He, he's, he's really going to pick up on a couple of practical examples, physical, practical examples of um, the absurdity of this. So I'll explain it like this. In verses 12 to 19, the Apostle Paul laid out the theological and what we could even call the salvific implications of denying the resurrection. It, it is essentially, it's essentially this. If there's no resurrection then there's no salvation, okay? That's the sort of the, of course that's practical, but that's the theological background that he has already talked about. But then here in these verses that we're going to look at today, he's going after the actions that people take because they are Christians, because of the resurrection, because they are saved. And of these actions, he gives two examples, one that is done by others and one action that he is intimately involved with. Then Paul comes back around to clearly articulating how the doctrine of the resurrection really relates to all of the ethical and, and moral issues that he, he's been addressing to them all throughout this letter. 
Things like the the immorality that was growing in the church, the factions and divisions that had been uh, developing between believers seemed to be fostering and and, and festering in the church, as well as the lawsuits even between co-church members and other selfishness that was present there amongst the Corinthian believers. So if I was going to put this passage into into one simple statement, I, I would say it like this. The resurrection necessitates the believer to take sin seriously. The resurrection necessitates, it is vital for believers to take sin seriously. It absolutely must have a direct impact on how Christians live in the present. So so this is the question that I want you to to wrestle with or consider this morning. And, and it's sort of backwards, but I think it'll make sense to you. If the dead are not raised, what would change about your life? If you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if the dead are not raised, what would change about your life? Would anything? This is a question for those of us who are Christians who are living in light of the resurrection, living lives of spiritual regeneration, transformation, and and even Christ-likeness. If the dead are not raised, what would change? And if the answer is, well, nothing really, I guess. Maybe my Sundays would be free. Then you very well may not truly believe and need to repent of that. Let's look at these examples of specific actions that people make because they believe. Because they believe in something, Paul is saying. The example, the first example, example number one, is this baptism for the dead. Look at verse 29. He says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? behalf. Now, of course, he is laying out this argument. There are those in the church who are saying that there is no baptism for the dead. And Paul, uh, there, is no, there is no resurrection, sorry. And Paul is explaining, well, there is a resurrection, and here's why. So he gets to this point, and he says, otherwise, what do people mean by baptism for the dead? Now, the first thing that we need to understand here, and, and I want to say this right at the beginning so that we don't lose the forest for the trees, um, Paul is making, the point that Paul is making here is actually really clear. Even if we don't understand the idea of baptism for the dead. So here's the point that Paul is making. If the dead are not raised, then why do some people participate in this particular practice of baptism? So if we lay aside the sort of hard to understand bits for just a moment, the baptism for the dead, and remember that baptism itself has to do with new life and even, yes, resurrection, right? So first of all, Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 29, tells us that baptism is about identifying with Christ as one of His people. So Galatians 3, 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
And that identification with Christ, it's not just in name only. It goes beyond that. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Or, or Romans chapter 6. Verses 3 and 4, which says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the, the, the practice, the, the action of baptism is a picture of dying to sin and being raised in, in His righteousness, in Christ's righteousness. Baptism is all about resurrection and eternal life. So to deny an actual physical resurrection makes the practice of baptism redundant, and we might go so far to say as it would be a foolish superstition. Because if, if what does baptism achieve or even represent if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, then nothing good can possibly come from the sacrament. And the wet ones will look like fools. At best, baptism would only kind of merely be a membership tradition, an initiation rite. Because if the dead are not raised, then they can have no deeper significance or meaning. Now, since Paul's point is actually pretty clear, right? As I said, it is, it is, um, it's tempting to actually move on without further comment on this baptism for the dead. To simply leave it there. But we can't do that. Especially since an entire group of people have taken that statement, this verse, and incorporated it into their belief system, their, their false religion, and, and developed it into an entire profitable industry that maybe you've even participated in. So let's acknowledge a, a few points. First, and I want to be very clear about this, I am not trying to say that you should not use the resources of Ancestry.com or whatever any of those sites are. That stuff can be really fascinating and helpful for family research. And so whether or not you go to them for help researching your own family history is not my concern. The second thing, let's get to the content of what Paul is saying here. Because this verse is a very peculiar statement. This is the only particular place in Scripture where this, this concept is mentioned, baptism for the, on behalf of the dead. But there are a few passages that are we could put in the same kind of category, a few passages like this in the Bible, not with this particular content, but as a, as a passage where something strange is mentioned in passing. So, so think, for example, of the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, where you have the sons of God and the daughters of men and some strange things happening. Think of a bunch of Jude's letter which references that and has some other strange things happening. 
Think of when Peter is writing about Noah and the waters of baptism. And one thing that's common in all of these for us is that we, we actually don't develop entire doctrines based on strange passages of Scripture that no one really agrees on. <laughs> we need to acknowledge that. This verse here, verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15, is so puzzling to scholars, Bible scholars, that, for example, in Leon Morris's um, commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says that there are over 200 interpretations of just this phrase, being baptized on behalf of the dead. So there are over 200 different theories as to what that means. But what we do know, and what we do need to remember, is that Paul never says here, everyone should do this. Or as I've taught you to, he says nothing like that. There's no command here. This is just a, st a statement that some people are doing this. Now, I think, I think, I believe that what this is, is that there were some who were engaged in those proxy baptisms like the Mormons are doing. People who were being baptized vicariously in the place of those who had already died without being baptized like the Mormons are doing. So you would come to a baptism service. This is what it would look like. You'd come to a baptism service. You'd witness the baptism of a living person. But that person would actually be, be dunked for someone else who had already died either without Christ or at least without being baptized. So, so desperate were they for their, for their loved ones, for those who had gone before them to be in heaven, that they were being baptized in their name, in their place. But remember, Paul is not advocating this. He, he's not even really even explaining it. He's just simply stating that it is happening. But the clue that I think that we can see here is that he uses this word people twice to indicate who's doing it. So it seems, this seems, the fact that he says people, let me read verse 29 again. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Um, I think the point that Paul is trying to make here is that this is, this is happening either somewhere else, like not in the Corinthian church, but they've heard of this, and maybe it's a common practice somewhere, although they must have known about it. Or possibly, because of, the, because of the example, it's possible that, that it might be that those who denied a resurrection at all were also the ones who were active in this particular practice. Um, but again, we just don't know. He just simply says, this is happening and people are doing this. There have been several groups over the centuries that have taken... Um, various verses and often these difficult ones to understand and have developed practices and customs based on them. Uh, so this is how you get this is how you get Appalachian snake handlers in church because they take the end of Mark's gospel which especially in like the King James version the older versions uh, talk about snakes taking up snakes and not being harmed. This is a simple statement that something was happening, but that does not equal a command that something ought to happen regularly, that it must be the norm. 
And incidentally, in that passage in Mark about the snakes, what's interesting is that Paul does that in Acts. He gets bit by a snake and it doesn't hurt him, miraculously, because God intervened. It doesn't mean that we all will survive snake bites and we ought to be able to handle. Keep that right out of here. Paul doesn't actually spend much time on this concept, and he actually focuses his um, he shifts his focus to his second example here. And his second example is suffering for the gospel. Look at verse 30. So he mentions that, and then in verse 30 he says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Well, Paul is shifting his focus from people, in verse 29, the practice that seems to be out there. First he mentions we, and then he eventually shifts this over fully to himself and his own life and, and his own ministry. And he's doing this to make the point that everything he does is based on his understanding of the resurrection. If there's no resurrection then not only are all of those things true up in verses 12 to 19, right? We're still dead in our trespasses and sins. There's a whole list of things that are still true if there's no resurrection. But also, Paul is saying his entire life's work is completely meaningless if there's no resurrection. But he starts this example with a rhetorical question there in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Now, the we is probably the entire group of apostles. Maybe it is all ministers of the gospel, or maybe all Christians. We know that the apostles, especially as the, as the leaders of the Christian movement, they were specifically in danger, both from the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem and at times from the Roman authorities who were suspicious of, of anything that could be perceived as rebellion. And so he probably has at least the apostles in mind here. And this statement here of being in constant danger, that isn't an exaggeration. By the time Paul is writing this letter, both Peter and John have been arrested multiple times and beaten, told to stop preaching. We also know that in Acts chapter 12, which takes place before he writes this letter, we read this in the first few verses of Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he also saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but an earnest, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So by the time Paul is writing this letter to, to the Corinthians, at least one of the apostles had been killed, James, the brother of John. Yet their attitude of all the apostles was one of rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus Christ. So when Paul writes down in verse 31, I die every day, it's, it's of course hyperbole, but it's a hyperbole that is born in grief and sorrow, yet always rejoicing. Paul is reminding them 
I die to myself every single day. This is a constant theme of his writing. Romans chapter 6, verses 10 and 11 says, For the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Galatians 5, verse 24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You're probably familiar with Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when Paul says here, I die to myself every single day, day. He's talking about putting to death the deeds of the flesh, casting off the sin that so easily entangles and being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. For he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, the rest of this passage translates, the rest of this verse, verses 30, 31, translates a little bit awkwardly. Paul is boasting here. Let let me read verse um, 31 again. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Paul is boasting in these things. Um, He's boasting that the Corinthians, he's, he's not really boasting in his own work, he's really boasting that the Corinthians are the fruit of his apostolic labor and suffering. So remember back in chapter 9, he had said to them in the first couple of verses, he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's boasting in their faith, in their growth, in their Christ-likeness. He's boasting in the church. And this is, we need to understand this, this is not a self-serving boast, but rather a boast that, that Christ has and is still working through him. And that his work is, as he will say in his second letter, 2 Corinthians 4, he says this, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not what I'm doing. It's what Christ is doing. It is what God is doing. It is what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. He says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in your mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. Paul is willing to spend and be spent on behalf of the churches, on behalf of the Christians of Corinth, that they might grow in faith. And this suffering that Paul was doing, it was part of his commission. It was part of his ordination, actually. 
In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Jesus himself had said of Paul, he said this, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There is a reason that the Apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles were willing to suffer imprisonment, danger, and even death if that would cause the gospel to spread. The reason is the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. This is why he will say later on, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is also why Paul was willing to suffer at the hands of the wild beasts of an angry mob led by Demetrius the silversmith in Ephesus. That's what he's referring to there at the beginning of um, verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? The mob in Acts chapter 19, really just time after time after time, Paul was willing to risk it all for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually really believed. He actually really believed that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He really believed that. This is completely counter to the philosophy of the world, which is right there. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? If there's no resurrection, then that's all we got. Enjoy your last meal. Hope you get the mac and cheese. But there's hope. There's hope because there's a resurrection. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And so now Paul appeals to holy living. Pick it up there in the middle of verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, and he gives them another slogan, um, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. This is the second slogan, verse 33. Bad company ruins good morals. To live Christianly, to live as Christians, requires great strength and courage. I hope that you understand that. To live Christianly requires great strength and courage. The temptation to live like the world is real and it is lethal. Paul has appealed to this kind of holy living that he's appealing to here. He's appealed to holy living before. In fact, back in chapter 6, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so when Paul pulls out these two figures of speech here in verses 32 and 33, he does so to remind us that our hope is in the risen Christ. That bad company, in this case those who deny the resurrection, those who, who, who believe wrong things about Jesus and are actively teaching wrong things, things that are counter to the gospel, things that are counter to scripture, they will eventually lead them, the Corinthian church, astray. It's similar to the phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He uses that in chapter 5 a few times. It's sort of the idea behind this bad company ruins good morals. But because Christ is risen, because we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life as transformed people, as a holy people. Christian, Christian conduct matters. Holy living matters. It matters for Christians. And if he's not been clear up until this point, he's going to be very clear with his very pastoral application of verse 34. Let me read it. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Stop it, Paul says. Stop sinning. There's a definition, I think it was developed by um, a Jewish philosopher named Philo, who lived about 100 years before, um, before this. He defined what he called drunkenness of soul, which is the idea that Paul is talking about here. He defines drunkenness of soul as the ignorance of things which we should naturally have acquired knowledge. The ignorance of things which we should naturally have acquired knowledge. The risen Christ, that Christ has risen, is, is the most basic doctrine of Christianity. To be ignorant of this area is to have no knowledge of God whatsoever, right? To say I'm a Christian but I don't believe Jesus really rose from the dead is to say something along the lines of science is actually my highest authority. But scriptures are highest authority. The risen Christ is the most basic doctrine of Christianity. And to ignore that or to deny the risen Christ is really to have no knowledge of God whatsoever. And for some in the Corinthian church to say there is no resurrection of the dead is for them to live essentially in a drunken stupor and they should be ashamed, Paul says. I wonder sometimes if Paul didn't also write these words to the Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, it says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone, someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But I find assurance in that shortly after he says those words, shortly after he says 
something very similar that he says here. Wake up, stop sinning, pay attention. I find it assuring that he says in, and I think this applies to us, in Hebrews chapter 6, he says this. Though we speak in this way, this sort of forceful wake up, you should be ashamed of yourselves kind of way. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is why uh, Redemption Bible Church, I still have to stop and think. This is why Redemption Bible Church is, is because I'm proud of you in the same way that Paul is proud of the Corinthians. Because I boast in you in the same way that Paul boasts in the Corinthians. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit, but I am grateful that God is able to use me to build us up. Because I look around and I, I know, I see that you have the love that you have shown for his name and the serving of the saints as you do so often. The love for one another, the serving one another, the caring for one another. And I know that you're not sluggish but you are holding fast to the truth that he has risen. He has risen indeed. I think we'll stop there this morning. We'll pick it up next week. Hold fast to the truth that he has risen. Stop sinning. Be conformed to the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is my prayer that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would hold out in, in front of ourselves um, because you have held out for us the hope of the resurrection. Lord, we believe that eternal life begins at the moment of salvation, but we still long for the day when we can be with you face to face. when we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when we can approach the table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we can see Jesus with our own eyes. But Father, we live, um, even as we sang, blessed assurance. We live with the assurance that we have been forgiven. Help us to hold fast to the truth of your word, the truth that Christ is risen, that he is risen indeed. Lord, help us to hold fast to the truth that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And as we come to the, as we come to the table this morning, we eat and drink and proclaim his death until he comes. His death as the atonement for our sins, that he went as a substitute for us, that he lived the perfect um, lawful life perfectly obedient to you, perfectly obedient to your law, even to the point of death, that he became the Passover lamb,
the offering, the sin offering, Lord, that our sin was imputed to him. Father, as we come to the table this morning to eat and drink, Lord, we come to proclaim his death, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, but that he was also raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Father, we hold fast to this truth that Christ has taken our sin and that he has ascended to your right hand where he always lives to make intercession for us, where he prays for us. And he has not left us alone, but has left us with with the, the Holy Spirit who is our comforter and guide, who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Father, we rejoice that we have not been left alone. We long for the day when we can see you, Father, Son, and Spirit face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.